kind of a monster uses uh, second verse same as the first in a number one song. In a number one song that has one verse repeated three times? Man, that, that is nuts. Do you know this is the best, uh, not best seller, this is the fastest selling song in history at the time it was recorded. Which was? Uh, 1965. You just heard uh, our new theme song for all of our episodes. I'm NRA Day 8, I am. By Herman's Hermits, that <laughs> famously beloved British British surf rock band. Yeah, so uh, the, so Jake uh, thought, he said earlier, and this is very, very true, like Henry VIII is the most well-known monarch in world history, and, and today we're talking about Henry VIII. Uh, but Jake, before that, what's up with life, man? What's going on? Life's good. Uh, finished a long-running project on uh, Karl Barth and Marcion and anti-Semitism as theological concepts, so uh, hit us up if you're interested in hearing more about that. Uh, got another book-related deal uh, that's been accepted but needs some revisions, so more about that later. Oh, nice. Your uh, technology one? Yeah, yeah. That got accepted, the chapter formally. Oh, uh, yeah. Just to make awesome. some revisions. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I just finished... Uh first semester of coursework so now i'm editing a book called baptists and the holy spirit for the professor i work for here at baylor so that'll be fun nice it's on baptists and pentecostals nice yeah going to see the new spider-man movie tonight so it's fun <laughs> yeah sure that'll be good i feel like every movie is a spider-man movie now basically yeah so uh jake what are we drinking today uh, well, what we're drinking is we took two PBRs out of your fridge. Uh, I know that some of our, uh, listeners aren't based in America. I don't know if PBR sold outside of the United States. Uh, yeah. it's the worst. It's great. Come on. It's incredibly cheap. It barely costs money. You, <laughs> you kind of don't even really need currency to get it. It's, it's water. It's free. Uh, but we took this PBR and we poured a lot of lime juice into it and it's almost undrinkable. <laughs> Why did we do? It's great. I think I poured like twice as much as you did. More for the meme. Yeah, sure, sure. Gerhard, why did we do that? Why uh, did we wreck this already not good beer? It's a great beer, and we made it better, uh, because England um, in the fifteen thirties um, to forty five era, the time of Henry the Eighth sort of Reformation. Is it a Reformation if you just pour just a little bit of Protestantism into a very Catholic country. I don't know. Is, is it a Mexican beer if you pour a lot of lime juice into a PBR? I don't know. Neither do I. I just know it's barely drinkable. <laughs> and Henry VIII, Henry VIII's England is barely readable unless you just want all the, the juicy drama. So yeah, uh, we're starting a longer running series on the English Reformation, which is a big area of interest for both Gerhard and I. Uh, back in my literature days, I did a lot with literature of the English Reformation, so hopefully we'll talk about that more later. Uh, but starting off with Henry VIII, uh, he is a fascinating figure, he's one talked about a lot, uh, and he's one that his personality quirks had massive effects on the shape of European and Western and just sort of generally world history. So we want to talk today about who was Henry VIII? What were the reforms that came about uh, during his reign? Why did they come about? 
Um, and maybe get into some more personal debate on, is Henry VIII a, a scheming mad tyrant, or is he something more of a sympathetic figure? Yeah, so uh, to get into that, uh, let's talk about the beginning <clears throat> of Henry's reign. Um, so Henry takes the throne in 1509, and uh, the Reformation doesn't happen. Uh, the beginnings, the rumblings of the English Reformation doesn't happen until 1530 or so, maybe a little longer, a little later, depending. Uh, so what happens in the 21 years between Henry taking the throne and his embrace of Luther's 1517 realizations? Well, uh, Henry is pretty young when he takes the throne, uh, but Henry was actually the uh, second son of the previous king, Henry VII. Uh, his older brother was Arthur, uh, and Prince Arthur, when he was, what was it, was he like 13, 14 years yeah, old? Something like that. Um, he gets married uh, in an arranged marriage to a Spanish princess just about the same age named Catherine of Aragon. Um, it's a strategic marriage, hoping to build an alliance between the um, English and the Spanish, but uh, just, a, I think, three or four months into uh, Arthur and Catherine's marriage, uh, Arthur dies. Uh, they both get very sick. Uh, she survives. He does not. Uh, Catherine is left just sort of stranded in England for a while. She's sort of a political hostage in this bad situation. Uh, but eventually, Henry VII dies. Henry VIII, who's about ten years old at the time, inherits the throne um, and chooses to be married to uh, Catherine. So uh, if you think in your political map, um, in your mind... England, uh, France, uh, the Spanish countries, and the Holy Roman Empire are sort of your four world political uh, movers, right? So you've got the empire, and they're doing their thing. France and England are always kind of at war. France had just recently uh, taken back almost all of its territory um, because England actually owned quite a bit of what is now France in the 1400s, and France... Um, Pretty, pretty quickly on um, after that started taking it all back by Henry's time France had consolidated um, the continent but England was still pretty big it's maybe about two-thirds the size of 1500s France something yeah. like that it's secluded on its own island so it has sort of uh, natural insulation a little natural protection very defendable very defendable um, and Spain is a very defendable area, too. Um, if you think about modern Spain, there's Portugal on the west, and then Spain is covering the rest of the continent. Uh, about two-thirds of that Spain area uh, was what's called Castile, and then a third of it on the far eastern border was called Aragon. And Catherine of Aragon is from Aragon. Event uh, very quickly um, in this sort of era... Castile and Aragon unite, and they become what was now known as Spain. Um, but, like Jake was saying, this is a political marriage to essentially consolidate two of the most powerful um, nations in the world into a political alliance, into a military alliance, you know, things along these lines. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have this idea of Henry VIII just sort of cycling through wives, you know, as quickly as he's marrying them, but Henry and Catherine are married for uh, over 20 years, and by all accounts, it's a pretty happy marriage. 
she ends up being a very good military strategist and helps win some battles in Scotland. Um, she's, as far as I can tell in the primary sources, very well liked by the public. Uh, and we don't see hints of strife in their marriage for a while. Um, but very famously, the one sort of problem, at least in a medieval mindset, is that 20 years into the marriage, uh, Catherine still has not had a male son. Male son, that's repetitive. But uh, Catherine's had a daughter, uh, and she's had several, several uh, miscarriages, unfortunately. Um, and that's really started to wear over the first 20 years of their marriage on uh, on both of them. Yeah, um, and so as this personal drama is unfolding... Um, the sort of religious and political drama of the Protestant Reformation is also unfolding. So, like you know by now, um, if you didn't already, Luther posted his 95 Theses in 1517, which attacked some uh, Catholic doctrines <clears throat> by the 15, early 1520s, debatably. Um, debatable if it's going to be that late or a little earlier. Luther is more of a Protestant and protestantism which centers around things like justification by grace through faith and uh, rejection of praying to saints rejection of images and worship um, a lot of these are going to be dependent on which protestant group you're talking about but this sort of conglomeration of ideals is ideas is spreading around europe like wildfire um, and uh, england is uh, pretty is pretty protected from that actually in uh, 1521, uh, Henry VIII writes a, well, him and his advisors write a book called The Defense of the Seven, Seven Sacraments, um, which is a direct attack on Luther's Babylonian captivity for the church, which we have an episode on if you're interested in reading. But basically, in 1521, in the middle of Henry's uh, personal drama of not being able to have a son with Catherine, he uh, doubles down on the seven sacraments of Catholicism, um, which are viewed as essentially the heart of traditional Catholic piety, and so um, is seen by at least the Pope, um, but seen by his subjects and by the international community as like the good Catholic king who will not allow these new heretical Protestant ideas in his nation, and he's given Defender of the Faith for that by the Pope, which is a title um, that comes with a lot of prestige and um, would create a, a deeper sense of imperial majesty because the kings of England still consider themselves, you know, as on par with the empire, with France. Right, and of course, um, Catherine of Aragon is also deeply catholic in her um in her convictions being from this area of the world um no hints yet of any sort of protestantism sir stirring in um england uh <clears throat> maybe just a little bit of an interesting historical note to think forward uh, like we said earlier there is one daughter uh from the marriage that survives um that would be mary uh who would be known when she took the throne to try and convert england back to catholicism uh, this is much later in history but and violently prosecutes Protestants. Um, it's worth remembering that uh, Bloody Mary, she's remembering, grew up in Henry's court at a time when it was exceptionally Catholic. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of the reason why the wars after Henry get so 
personal and violent is because the stakes were really sort of this kind of intimate. Uh, like we said, religion and the Reformation get tied up very deeply in what ends up going on in Henry's court. Um, but along with that, so how do we get from uh, Henry as defender of the Catholic faith to Henry, the the one that breaks from the Pope and starts the English Reformation? Uh, well, it's probably about 1527 that Henry starts to decide that he needs to end his marriage to Catherine. Um and the, the reason for this it's given is that Henry is reading his Bible, and he comes across a passage in Leviticus that says that uh, God will curse anybody that takes his brother's wife. Now, if you'll remember, Catherine was originally married for just a few months to uh, Henry's older brother, Prince Arthur. Uh, and there was a question of, in this couple of months that they were married, but also both very sick, was the marriage ever consummated? Um... Catherine had said after Arthur died that they had never actually had uh, a sexual relationship, which meant that under canon law, they weren't actually married, which would allow uh, Henry to marry Catherine without uh, the without violating the papal law on uh, incest. So that had required at first a papal dispensation. So the the Pope in the year 1505, um, when Henry is wanting to uh, Mary Catherine has to come in and sort of give an okay to this to basically say yes I as the Pope can confirm that um, they didn't consummate the marriage so they were never legally married um, so Catherine was never really the wife of Prince Arthur so she can marry Henry um, Henry starts to become unsure and he starts to fear that maybe the reason that they're not able to have a male heir is that um, he's under a curse from God that Catherine maybe lied about uh, consummating the marriage, or that in some way or another God has cursed them for violating this law. And so he begins to think about ways to get out of the marriage. But there's some pretty significant problems um, with Henry getting the annulment from the Pope, uh, which is Clement VII um, at this point. Um, there are a couple problems. The first is a Pope had just previously given... Uh, the right for um, Henry and Arthur to marry. And so um, for this pope to say, no, you were never married in the first place, would be at the same time be saying, my predecessor um, was wrong when he gave you guys the right to get be married, which uh, doesn't look good for the pope to just blatantly disregard the official decision of another pope uh we don't have the doctrine of papal infallibility yet but that was a very strong um that it was still very much in the air um that the pope and uh the church couldn't err when speaking dogmatically um because they were led by the holy spirit this is part of luther's whole program and so there's this religious element to pope clement the seventh not wanting to give henry uh the annulment because that would cut away from their own religious uh, power. Uh, secondarily, um, if we think back to the political setup that we talked about earlier, um, the big players in the world are England, France, the Holy Roman Empire, and the conglomeration of Spain, which is Castile and Aragon. Uh, Catherine is Catherine of Aragon. Um, and so if the Pope says, yes, Henry, you can divorce Catherine, uh, technically, if your marriage to Catherine is annulled, that's going to really piss off uh, the 
King of Aragon, and at a time when it was very a very real possibility for a, a ruler to come in and kick down the doors in Rome and just kidnap the Pope and force him to do what they want, um, like had happened to a recent Pope um, by the King of France, uh, it would be bad... It would be bad politics as well as bad religion to give Henry the uh, okay to divorce Catherine. And so, predictably, Clement VII said, Nope, you cannot divorce Catherine. Uh, your marriage is valid and you got to stay in it. So I'm trying to give Henry the benefit of the doubt. Um, <clears throat> Henry is clearly very religious and he clearly believes what he has come to learn religiously and theologically. And he's this popular young king. He's very active in sort of public sports. He's well-liked, and he seems to be genuinely somewhat pious. Um, but not only does Henry fear that God might have cursed his marriage, and now he's thinking that the Pope is keeping him in a sinful marriage, he is also not a person that uh, controls himself especially well. Um, somewhat manipulatable, uh, and he has really taken a liking to uh, a young woman in his court named Anne Boleyn. Uh, so not only does Henry feel religiously that he needs to get out of this marriage, suddenly he's sort of uh, got his heart set on this young woman who, uh, while Henry is known to have lots of extramarital affairs, uh, Anne Boleyn had, I believe, a sister that was actually Henry's mistress for a time. Uh, Anne Boleyn was a little bit smarter than that and realized that being the king's mistress was not a good way to really get anywhere politically, and she wants to be queen. So she denies any sort of uh, sexual relationship with Henry until uh, they are actually legally married, or at least engaged, uh, which really starts to drive Henry forward on this plot. Um, we've got the religious aspect, and now just the personal aspect of he has a crush, and he wants to get with Anne Boleyn, but to do that, he needs a divorce from the Pope. So what do you do? What's really funny, it just hadn't struck me until hearing Jake talk about it, uh, he was already breaking the uh, the sort of religious law that he was appealing to in wanting to marry Anne Boleyn, because technically, according to canon law, if you have sex with someone, uh, you cannot marry the a sibling of that person. Uh, so that was as uh, breaking canon law as the ploy that he's deploying to get rid of Catherine of Aragon, which is pretty funny. That's incredible. And also, I would imagine just, like, straight adultery is probably against canon law. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know. But, uh, I mean, he's a king, so it's sort of... Yeah, it's sort of fine uh, for that sort of medieval mindset and for, you know, modern mindsets. Yeah, uh, before, you, uh, before you laugh at the medievals and being, you know, contradictory where the king's allowed to commit adultery, keep in mind that here where we're recording in the United States... There are lots of lawyers debating right now if it's possible for the president to be in legal trouble. Yeah, and it, there's lots of uh, just conservative-leaning Christians who think that Donald Trump is just like the hero of the faith, um, and he has numerous documented affairs. So Yeah. Take the log so out of your own. <laughs> get off that high horse. Uh, yeah, what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, him wanting to marry Anne Boleyn. I was doing the, sure. so what do you do, set up for the Act of Supremacy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> the Act of Supremacy. Uh, this is, 
And so the Pope has said, no, you cannot uh, get rid of Catherine of Aragon. Your marriage is valid. Um, but Henry wants what he wants, and he's going to get it. And so, so he takes a line from um, other European powers at this point. Um, he is about to say, uh, about to put out what we call now the Act of Supremacy, which basically means uh, the English king is the head of the church in England. What that means practically is that if the English uh, nobility centered around the king makes a decision about something related to the church, um, then you cannot appeal over the king's head to the church in Rome. Uh, this was already the case for other other European powers before Henry. Uh, the king of France was already a supreme ruler in France. Um, at one point, the king of France even sacked the city of Rome, uh, took the pope hostage, and uh, kept him in Avignon for hundreds of years. Uh, so, like, kings were not necessarily squeamish about flaunting papal authority um and henry in the act of supremacy is essentially just doing what other powerful english monarchs are doing um, but it has more fateful consequences for england than it does for france um and correct me if i'm wrong but i think part of the reason that henry's what could itself be a sort of soft unremarkable reform becomes the english protestant reformation is First of all, Anne Boleyn is deeply Protestant and wants to see Protestant England. And yeah. two, uh, just two years after this act is released, um, Henry VIII brings a, a bishop named Thomas Cramner under his uh, court as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And yeah. Cramner has uh, ambitions of a Protestant England as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, like Jake and I were talking before this, um, he made the point. So we were talking about something that we'll talk about eventually is, is the English Reformation under Henry a real Reformation? Or is it just morphed Catholicism? And Jake made a point that I thought was profound that it, yes and no, uh, it is, but not because of Henry, because of Henry's advisors. And um, people like Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cramner, um, like Jake was just saying, are the people who push forward a real Protestantism in England. Henry um, is going to try to pull back and just essentially be a modified Catholic. Um, but his, what what makes the act of supremacy mean more in England than in France is that Henry gathers around himself these advisors who are pushing for Luther's ideas and that makes space for Luther's ideas and um, other radical Protestants' ideas in England. And then that sort of starts a, like a, gra a groundswell of conversion um, that'll culminate in the next ruler that we'll talk about who really creates a Protestant England, which is Edward VI, Henry's uh, first son. But that's in the future. Right. I think really part of the reason that the act of supremacy goes from sort of a just uh, something more or less like France did, but still remained religiously Catholic, uh, to a full-out eventually Protestant Reformation in England, is that especially Boleyn and Cranmer were really good at um, getting Henry to do things they wanted him to do, it, convincing him that reforms he wouldn't otherwise want to make were in his best interest. Um, like, for example, Gerhard, you probably know more than I do about the uh, the sacking of the monasteries. I don't know a lot, um, 
But one of the things that uh, sort of propagandists in England were convinced of is that uh, money was being channeled out of the hands of the English um, nobility and out of the English people into um, into the church establishment, which obviously draws out of England itself into Rome. And so um, I forget the exact number. We talked about it, and it was pretty shocking. A large percentage of the land, um, which is what creates the wealth in a late medieval, early modern society, a large percentage of the land was in the hands of the clergy. Um, and it's not as if priests themselves were doing the work. They uh, essentially rented out the land to peasants to work the land. Um, and they paid the peasants wages, and they uh, took the the profits from the land, brought it into the church, and that would funnel up, up the uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy to Rome. And this created an extremely wealthy... Um, monasteries, extremely wealthy uh, priestly class. Now, individual priests could be pretty poor, but the class itself um, became very powerful and very wealthy. Um, and this is, this is on top of people dedicating land, dedicating uh, large sums of money to the church in order for priests to pray on behalf of their souls to get them out of purgatory, because this is a still very live thing um, in England at the time. And so because um, of these dedications, these gifts, and um, the church's large uh, amount of land that they owned in England, uh, the church was extremely wealthy, especially the monasteries were extremely wealthy. And so um, there was a lot of anger and resentment towards that. And part of this move um, to cut off the power of the papacy in England um, is to uh, dissolve lots of monasteries around England to take back the land that they've accumulated and hand it out to other English nobles. Um, and this, um, th they didn't say it quite that frankly. Um, just like today, you have to find some sort of a moral justification for your land grabbing actions. Um, and so one of the common uh, slanders that was used against um, monks is that they were uh, they were gay, um, that they were having sex with each other within the monasteries, um, and this was in order to get people really fired up and to get them angry and to give Henry and his court a moral justification uh, for shutting down all the monasteries or a lot of the monasteries. Um, that and that they were greedy and taking all your money were the two main moral justifications. So why would uh, the the deeply Catholic-sentimented Henry VIII decide to go ahead and agree to this program where all these monasteries are shut down and the wealth taken out of them? Well, let's, let's step back on the timeline a little bit just to keep things clear. 1533, um, the month of January, Henry marries Anne Boleyn, his second wife. Later that year, in April, Thomas Cramner formally dissolves, acting in his uh, authority as Archbishop of Canterbury, formally dissolves his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. Uh, the following year, 1534, 
Pope Clement VII comes in and says, hey, you can't do that. That's a valid marriage that can't be dissolved. The Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't have the authority to dissolve a marriage. Uh, so that year, 1534, about a year after he's married Anne Boleyn, this Act of Supremacy is introduced that says nobody can anymore appeal a case higher than the King of England. Um, at this point, we're still looking at a very Catholic England, uh, but in 1536, we start this program we were just talking about where the monasteries start to be emptied. Um, while Henry generally wants to remain a faithful Catholic, just not under the Pope's direct political control, he's also actually kind of poor at this point in history. Uh, they have been fighting sort of nonstop wars uh, to the south with France and to the north with Scotland, uh, and some of the French campaigns have really not gone well for Henry. So uh, he has this sort of large appetite for luxury, but his uh, his sort of imperial coffers aren't doing so well right now, which is where some of his advisors suggest, you know where you can get a lot of money? The monasteries. Uh, if you go to England today, you can still find several of these large castles that Henry built that are just extraordinarily large and ornate, and they were built with money uh, pulled from the monasteries at the time. Uh, so it's again, it's interesting how sort of Henry's desires and sort of inability to control himself ends up shaping history significantly. Uh, I think this dissolution of the monasteries is really where Protestant England is starting to emerge pretty strongly. Yeah, uh, it definitely, he definitely has to appeal to a popular um, anti-clerical sentiment. Um, in scholarship on the English Reformation, it's just wildly... Um, debated you know how much anti anti-priest sentiment there was and how how much did people want the reformation how much did it succeed and um, one thing that's pretty it seems pretty like uncontroversial to say is that people were upset about greed um they weren't necessarily upset with the notion of a priest or all priests are greedy but or it really wasn't directed towards priests, but towards um, the rich monasteries. But there was this sense of the, the church is taking all of our money. And so Henry appeals to this um, in order, like Jake said, among other things, to take the money for his own campaigns. Um, but this has a really strong effect on how... Uh, it's like lighting a... Um, trying to light just a part of your field on fire, right? Like, after not too much longer, it will get way out of control, um, and even Henry will be very uncomfortable with the sort of rising Protestantism. Jake said uh, something about the the wars in France. Uh, this is kind of a side. Um, I did find, doing some reading for this, I was reading some of the original acts. Uh, Henry's still calling himself uh, the king of France. And so he's still trying to uh, reconquer France, um, even though they had lost almost all of their... England had lost almost all of its continental land. Like, They've got a tiny sliver of land on the continent at this point. Yeah, it's up by, like, Holland or something like that. Um, it is almost purely symbolic. Just, look, we haven't lost the continent. We've still got a city that hasn't been conquered. Yeah, and they, not long before... Not just 100 years before that, they had, uh, like, the entire western coast of France... It was kind of nuts. 
1536 is the year, like we've been saying, that really Protestant England starts to take off with this uh, dissolution of the monasteries. Uh, but something else happens this year uh, that I don't think scholarship on Henry has picked up on quite enough as being a really important part of uh, his work. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that Henry was really popular because he was an athlete. Uh, he liked to do sword fights and jousting matches and horseback races and things like this, and it made him popular with the people. Jousting is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, when he was back still married to Catherine in his 20s, uh, he'd had his first really bad jousting accident. He forgot to lower his visor on his helmet, uh, and he got hit in the face with the um, lance that they were jousting with uh, and had bad migraines ever since that. Uh, he got hit just right above the eye. Um, but 1536, he's jousting again, so he and Anne have been married for three years at this point. Uh, they have not yet had a male son, and Henry's starting to get a little bit worried. Uh, but he's jousting in 1536, uh, and he gets knocked off of his horse hard. Uh, he falls down, uh, and for two hours he is, um, he's knocked out. He is thought dead for about a two-hour span of time. And Anne Boleyn is told, um, I'm sorry, Henry has died in a jousting accident. Uh, she, and this, this is a little bit of a content warning, I guess, because uh, this gets harsh, but uh, Anne is pregnant at the time this is happening, um, and she is incredibly distraught now, thinking that Henry has died, uh, and she ends up being so hysterical when this happens that she loses the pregnancy. Uh, it was a fairly developed pregnancy, and the doctors that treat Anne are able to determine what the gender of the child would have been had this not happened, and it was going to be Henry's first male son. Um, Henry and his personality really seems to take a turn at this point. This, I really think, is the point where Henry goes from sort of bombastic, larger-than-life, generally good-hearted guy that you know, lets his desires get in the way of good practice to kind of a tyrant. Uh, by Anne's writing, Henry really seems to check out of the marriage when this happens. He seems to, at this point, think that uh, God has nixed this marriage as well, which is why he begins an affair. Uh, I don't know that it actually was physically happening yet, but why he really starts to take a liking to Jane Seymour, who will eventually become wife number three. Uh, Gerhard, anything else to say there before we talk about the death of Anne Boleyn? No, I think it's great. Yeah, so real serious problems start for uh, Henry and Anne Boleyn's marriage in that year, 1536, after the jousting accident. Um, Henry seeks to now be out of this marriage because he wants to marry uh, Jane Seymour, uh, this other young noblewoman, uh, but Anne is not having that. Uh, a lot of secondary scholarships, scholarship on Henry recognizes that Anne Boleyn was a really smart political uh, sort of mover and manipulator, uh, and she realizes after this that she's in real danger. She remembers what happens to uh, what happened to Catherine with the divorce, and she doesn't want that to happen to her. Uh, so charges come up. Henry manages to uh, find some people that claim that they'd had uh, affairs with Anne, uh, and it gets bad. It's alleged at one point that Anne was having an affair with her brother. Uh, it is mudslinging of the top sort of variety. Um, 
Anne actually has a pretty smart plan in dealing with this that might be why she ends up being beheaded instead of divorced. Um, she essentially tries to shame Henry into not divorcing her. Uh, the divorce proceeding is public when Henry brings charges of infidelity to her, so she's supposed to come into this court and sit on the witness stand and explain calmly uh, why the charges aren't true. Uh, that's not what she does. 1536, the divorce trial begins, and uh, Anne Boleyn leaves the witness stand, walks up to Henry sitting in his uh, throne, and just throws herself on the ground and begs for mercy. Um, while that might not sound like a good tactic, it really made her look sympathetic. Uh, she was really playing an emotional defense of, I am a victim, and Henry has all the power, and hey, all of you lords, you know, nobles watching in attendance... Look how lowly and in danger my position is. And Henry is humiliated while this is happening. Uh, she loses, though, uh, and uh, doesn't win the case. Henry is very upset. She's not just divorced. Because the charge is infidelity, uh, she is beheaded that year. In, uh, on May 19th, 1536, Henry uh, presides over the execution of Anne Boleyn, uh, and marries Jane Seymour, his third wife now, almost immediately. Yeah, it's like a matter of, like, a couple weeks, I think. Is that even weeks? Maybe uh, it's I know the I know the date is not known. Okay. Uh, that's how sort of secretive they were with this. Excellent. Uh, and I think there might be some speculation that she was already pregnant when the marriage happened, which might be why the, uh, the date was kept a secret. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, do you have any more, like, personal... Um sort of thoughts on that or should we move to like the 10 articles and the pilgrimage of grace that's all good uh, a couple of things maybe to point out one is just another fun sort of historical bit if you were to travel to england today and go to the main castle associated with henry the uh he built his big castle after the dissolution of the monasteries and had large swaths of rooms dedicated to anne boleyn and so the uh uh like carvings on the wall and all the trimming and everything is this really intricate design of uh the initials a, B, and uh, H, V, I, 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 I guess, uh, sort of carved together. Uh, Henry, after this, though, demands that overnight all of those are re-carved so that they say uh, J, S instead of A, B. Uh, they missed one, and to this day it's been preserved. So if you go into the, uh, I think it's the dining hall of Henry's castle, uh, you can find one spot on the wall where uh, they work so quickly they forgot it. And That's awesome. And Boleyn's name is still there, yeah. That's like the most amazingly royal and british way to do like the tree carving thing right or like write in pencil on your wall or whatever right uh one last personal note before we jump back into the broadly religious things uh jane seymour does uh bear henry his first male heir uh but she will die very shortly after that um, so the famous divorced beheaded died. Uh, Jane Seymour dies naturally in childbirth, but does produce one male heir. Who becomes Edward VI, who is just this amazing figure who I'm very excited to talk about. Um, but, uh, staying on Henry, uh, in this whole moment of personal drama for Henry, um, dealing with his wives and trumping up, uh, adultery charges... There's a couple really important things that happen. Uh, the first is uh, 1536, he publishes uh, the Ten Articles, um, which is basically Henry's 
religious laws that are going forth and that he's defining for England what new religion in England is going to be like. Um, and I'm just going to like note quickly um, what they are and let you sort of feel just how Protestant or not Protestant this is, right? So the 10 articles, number one, uh, three creeds are affirmed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And, and these are called, quote, the most certain and infallible words of God. So Henry is saying the church's tradition enshrined in its creeds is as authoritative as scripture. Um, wouldn't have said it quite that way, but that is what uh, the Ten Articles implies. Uh, number two, and that is something that very quickly does become controversial among Protestants. Number two, uh, infant baptism is affirmed and that it washes away original sin. Uh, number three, penance, uh, which you can listen to our Luther episode for more talks about Protestants and penance. But penance is called necessary for salvation. Number four, this is this is tricky. Uh, the um, so the Eucharist, uh, communion, Lord's Supper, um, the wine and bread that Christians drink in their rituals is. Um, is always a like hot point for issues in the Reformation, and it's usually how people divided themselves was over how to interpret what the bread and the wine was. Um, and number four of the ten articles says uh, the the um, the bread and the wine is not literally the body and blood of Jesus transubstantiation. Um, going back to Aquinas, the sort of traditional Catholic model. It's not transubstantiation, but it is really literally there, quote, under the form of the bread and the wine. Um, and so this is actually more similar to Luther's position than to traditional Catholic position, which is interesting. And uh, that might be one of the only ways in which this English Reformation under Henry is really Protestant. Uh, number five, I think this is really telling. Uh, justification um, being made right with God, having your sins forgiven, happens uh, by faith and charity, um, is the word used, by faith and love. Translation, by believing in God, trusting in God, and by doing good works, um, which is really interesting. Um, the Ten Articles is explicitly rejecting sort of the Protestants' key, um, key point. Number six, it accepts the use of images in worship, um, like uh, statues of Mary, uh, uh, statues of Jesus. This is something that Protestants, especially Protestants associated with John Calvin um, and with the Reformation in Switzerland, are uh, very passionate against and trying to get rid of. Uh, number seven, saints should be honored, um, which really leads to number eight, that we should pray to saints, that we could pray to dead good Christians and they will intercede with God uh, for us and make God more likely to answer our requests. Uh, number nine, um, basic, number nine is complicated, but basically what it says is nothing about church practice from before uh, this quote English Reformation is going to change. We're going to have the same vestments, which is the clothes the priests wear. We're going to have the same rituals. We're still going to practice the mass, um, 
the difference between the Catholic Mass and the Protestant Communion um, is that in the Mass, you lift up the bread when you bless it, and in the Communion, you don't. That seems like a small difference, but it's not, because by lifting it up, you're inviting the congregation to venerate it, um, Protestants say, to worship it. Um, because that is the true body, you should truly worship it because you're worshiping Jesus in the, who is present in the bread. The Protestants say that's idolatry. You don't worship the bread, so you should never lift it up. You should break it, you know, sort of at a uh, table level. Seems like a small difference was very important uh, theologically at the time. And number 10, he says, we don't know if purgatory exists. Something like purgatory probably exists. Um, but go ahead and keep on, you know, praying uh, for the souls of your departed grandma. So, that was maybe, that was a, a whirlwind of doctrines, but I don't, but if you get the sense of, the general sense of these 10 articles, this is 1536, this is well into Henry's reign, um, and at the really, like, the quote, English Reformation is really getting going, that's very, very Catholic still, right? Like, only one, maybe two of them are semi-Protestant, and the rest are just doubling down on traditional Catholic piety. He does do something fairly um, Protestant-sounding in this time also, though, um, in that in uh, 1538, he sees uh, he oversees a publication of uh, the Bible into the English language. Uh, I'll let Gerhard talk more on the significance of that, but just to speak maybe artistically on it for a moment on something I found interesting... In this Bible that Henry has published in English, uh, the front page of it is uh, sort of just a car uh, the sort of woodcut block printed over it, the sort of carving, and it's uh, it shows Henry VIII sitting, taking up maybe a quarter to a third of the page. He's sitting on a throne, uh, sort of judging the world almost is what it looks like. It's borderline eschatological. If you look, he's easy to miss, but above Henry, taking up maybe a sixteenth of the page, you can see God just sort of smiling over Henry, <laughs> uh, apparently giving Henry the authority to do what he's doing, but then looking down across the page, uh, you can see this almost sheep and the goats feeling thing where people that are faithful to Henry and follow the king are, you know, blessed and living happy lives, but down in the bottom right corner, you can see these people miserable in this jail with sort of hell-looking overtones, and those are the bad traitors that didn't follow the king that God put there. That's uh, a funny little piece. I mean, like, this is really, like, Henry in the place of Christ, right? Like, mm -hmm. the vicar of Christ uh, in England. In Persona Christi, he is. Yeah, I mean, like, that's really what we have happening right now with Henry. Uh, something that maybe um, is a bit tangential, but maybe it'd be good for you to know about uh, there was a very, a very, very dangerous rebellion. Um, so in 1536, after the publication of the Ten Articles, it was they called themselves the Pilgrimage of Grace. Um, this is essentially a bunch of Catholic nobles saying, no, Henry, we're not going to submit to your new Protestant England. Um, even Henry's, you know, very minor, minor alterations of Catholicism as are understood on the Ten Articles, at least, um, are too much for these Catholic nobles. And so there's this rev uh, revolution of nobles. 
Um, they take a couple castles, I think. Um, and Henry is in a very difficult situation. Um, and they end up having to... Um, they end up having to negotiate with this mass rebellion and saying, all right, we're going to give the monasteries back their land. Um, we're going to allow Catholic piety and some other um, some other ways that aren't important for us to talk about right now. Um, Henry doesn't ever fulfill his negotiations with this revolt of Catholic nobles. Um, but it does show the sort of religious volatility of England at the time that there's an almost uh, kingdom-crushing revolt um, over these minor alterations to traditional Catholic piety. It's not even real Protestantism like will come in the next 10-15 years or so. Um, but the rejection of transubstantiation, um, the rejection of purgatory, the uh, dissolution of the monasteries, the um, rejection of the Pope's authority over the church in England is um, not, is welcomed by some in England, um, but it is very, very much rejected by some very important, very powerful people, and probably most people in England. So one more Protestant-leaning thing that happens in this time uh, is Henry's fourth marriage. Of course, Jane Seymour has died. Uh, one of Henry's most important, most trusted advisors, as we've mentioned a couple of times, is a guy named Thomas Cromwell. Uh, and Thomas Cromwell uh, sets up Henry's fourth marriage. Cromwell thinks it would be a very good idea for the Protestantizing England to be in a, a sort of military alliance with Germany, so he tries to set this up by marrying Henry to a, uh, arranging a marriage between Henry and a German princess named uh, Anne of Cleves. Uh, this is such a really interesting story. So, neither of them had ever seen Anne of Cleves before. Cromwell had a portrait of her that Henry really liked, uh, and agreed to marry her on the basis of this portrait. <laughs> so nuts. Yeah, uh, historically, what most biographies of Henry will say is that, uh, Henry was really not happy with the way she looked when they met in person, and that he ended up annulling the marriage immediately because, uh, he thought that she was basically too ugly for him. Uh, but there's another thing that happened that might actually be a more likely culprit that's equally funny, if not funnier, and that's that when they first met or were first brought to the same location to begin sort of negotiating the marriage... Henry, for some reason, disguises himself as a servant, uh, pretending to be like a courtier bringing a note from the king to Anne. Uh, I think Henry thought that Anne was going to fall in love with the courtier and it was going to be a really great story, uh, but she's not really impressed. Like, she thanks him and then sort of dismisses him, and Henry is outraged. Uh, so probably it's not so much that he thought she was too unattractive for him, he was really mad that she didn't fall in love with the disguised Henry on first sight. Uh, and he dismisses the, dismisses the marriage within six months. Uh, they dismiss it in a way that implies it was probably never even consummated. Uh, and this is a major embarrassment for Cromwell. Uh, Henry is furious with Cromwell. This is a huge embarrassment. Uh, they have to pay a big settlement to Anne to sort of dismiss this amicably. Uh, and at the same time, uh, believe it was the Duke of Norfolk, uh, is this figure that's a big political rival of Cromwell, and he sees opportunity, uh, so Henry has just dismissed wife number four, Anne of Cleves, 
uh, and the Duke of Norfolk has this really attractive, really good-looking teenage niece named Catherine Howard um, that he immediately swoops in and sort of marries Henry to. Um, Henry is so impressed with him that they essentially switch places. Um, poor uh, Thomas uh, Cromwell ends up being beheaded. Um, the Duke of Norfolk semi takes his place. Uh, Henry is married to his fifth wife now, Catherine Howard, uh, and that ends the next year because, by all accounts, she was uh, pretty sort of, I don't know what the good way to say loose is, but uh, she ends up the next year being executed for um, adultery, except this time it's very well grounded. Uh, it's very likely that the Duke of Norfolk knew that she was sort of uh, sexually promiscuous but saw the uh, the benefit of marrying her very quickly to Henry. Uh, when she's ex when she's caught in adultery and executed, her entire family also is, except the Duke of Norfolk, because he's too important in the court at this point. And this world is nuts. Yeah, so that's up to wife five. We'll just throw out for any of you keeping track at home. Six, uh, wife number six is Catherine Parr. Uh, she comes the next year and lasts until Henry dies a few years after that. Uh, so, God, this is so nuts. Right? Uh... So what's going on in these later years of uh, Henry's political, religious life? Um, he doubles down on traditional Catholic piety as he gets older. Um, in 1539, I believe he's still married to... Which one is this? In 1539, that would have been uh, right before Anne of Cleves. Because cool. he and Anne of Cleves get married January 1540. Cool. So this is like... Right in the thick of that drama, like we just keep on referring to his personal drama because it's just so interesting. It drives Protestant England. It's nuts. Yeah, uh, and like, so Protestantism in England is thriving. Uh, like Jake said, there is an English Bible that's published uh, a year before this in 1538 um, under Henry's supervision. Um, okay. Before I continue with that story, there's something that we need to clear up. Catholicism is not anti-vernacular, and uh, Protestantism is not the only sort of religious Christian group at the time that's championing English Bibles and German Bibles and French Bibles. Um, that is a really big oversimplification of something that's happening um, in the 1500s or so, and let's just clear that up for a second. Um, because I continue to see, like, uh, semi-intellectual semi blog posts and things like that by influential writers um, about, like, why Catholics hate English Bibles, why ca Catholics uh, hate vernacular, um, and why Protestantism is really the only champions of the Bible. Um, let's just clear that up for a second. The Bible, uh, the official Bible... Uh, for the Catholic Church from the Council of Trent onward, which is actually after this period, um, is the Latin Vulgate, which was translated from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic by Jerome in the 4th century. Is that right? 3rd? 3rd or 4th. It's either 4th or 5th. That's your period. You would know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Google it. This is a Reformation podcast. Yeah, it's not our thing. Talk to Tyler. Uh, by Jerome uh, early on. Um, that continues to be used um, up until this era, um, with some additions. 
but there had always been translations of the Latin Vulgate and sometimes even the Greek, not usually the Hebrew, into local languages. Um, the Visigoths get a translation uh, pretty quick after, um, in the 5th or 6th century. The, uh, there's a few English Bibles from the 12 and 1300s. Uh, let's see, there's some old French Bibles from about the same period. Uh, Catholics had been we really shouldn't talk about Catholics at this point, but traditional, uh, traditional Christianity uh, is translating the Bible into local languages and is not just insisting on everybody learning Latin. The entire Cyrillic alphabet was developed by missionaries that were trying to translate the Vulgate into vernacular languages in Northern Europe. Yeah, like this is a very normal thing for, we'll call them proto-Catholics, to do. Um, now... In the 1500s, there was some, or late 1400s, early 1500s, there was some suspicion of translations because uh, lots of heretics would translate the Bible um, or use translations of the Bible and insist on their own interpretation of those translations and then say, uh, don't trust your priest, just read the Bible for yourself and uh, you'll come to our conclusions. One of the main ones are the Lollards um, in England, who um, we think their name might have been from, like, mumblers because they tried to memorize scripture all the time. That's sort of the folk etymology. Um, they uh, were a big problem for England in the 1400s, and they were always trying to get vernacular Bibles out to everyone, which was not illegal, but they just really insisted on everyone reading the Bible for themselves and then uh, coming to their own conclusions on religion. Now, it was problematic because you were supposed to trust the church's interpretation of the Bible and not just go on and say whatever you think it says because that's what all heretics have always done, right? Um, so the church's traditional line is uh, orthodox people trust the church's traditional interpretation of, say, uh, John 1.1, uh, the word was with God. Uh, that, according to the church's traditional interpretation, uh, Jesus is of equal status with God the Father, even though um, John 1 1 makes a distinction between Jesus and the Father. Uh, the church would point to people like Arius, who tried to denigrate the role of the Son um, for this reason and other scriptural reasons and say, if you just try to interpret the Bible on your own without the wisdom of everyone around you and the teaching of the church through the centuries, you're going to end up a heretic like Arius or Nestorius or uh, all these other figures. Okay, that is what the proto-Catholic church had a problem with. People interpreting scripture differently than how the church said it should be interpreted. Um, this sort of gets wrapped up into vernacular translations into where sometimes in some places it becomes illegal to own a Bible in the local language. Um, but importantly, those laws are almost never enforced unless you're talking about heretics. So in England specifically, um, there are some laws um, put on the books pretty early in Henry's reign that say it's technically illegal to own an English Bible. Um, but essentially what it says is it's technically illegal to own an English Bible unless you're well-educated, unless you're a noble, 
and only we're only going to prosecute you if you also happen to be a heretic. And so it's sort of illegal, but sort of not illegal. Think of like marijuana in uh, Colorado. Technically illegal, but not really illegal. So all that is a long aside to say Catholicism is not anti-vernacular. Let's just deal with that right now. And I think that shows how much, by the end of his reign, Henry had not really changed all that much from his strong Catholic upbringing. Uh, And that's sort of the theme of the episode. Uh, Henry dies in 1547. He's reigned for almost 38 years at this point. Uh, Did he really oversee an English Reformation? Was Protestant England, in air quotes at the time of his death, really a Protestant country? Uh, well, that's not clear. I think the most that we can say is Henry VIII laid the groundwork for what would become Protestant England soon after his death. Yeah, I don't know. Um, as I was doing my, like, review reading for this episode, um, I went in thinking, yes, England is really Protestant, um, under Henry, um, but not as Protestant as we would we would see in like Switzerland or um, some parts of Germany. After my, after my reading though, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think that England up until the death of Henry state wise, like, like state church wise is still very Catholic with some minor alterations. Even though Henry sort of supplants the authority of the Pope Uh, and does a few sort of non-Roman Catholic measures, Uh, Protestant theology really doesn't take off in England until Henry's lifetime. And that's why I think it's hard to say that Henry starts a Protestant Reformation because Protestantism is a theological movement. If ideas like justification by faith alone aren't taking off in England, we can't really call it a Protestant state yet. Has Henry laid the groundwork for it? Absolutely. Um, but did Henry truly build a Protestant England? I don't think we can really say that. Yeah, and there was, I mean, there was a lot of Protestantism in England, especially in London, um, and there was actually some, uh, like, local government-sponsored persecution of these Protestants. Um, there was a, there was a number of Protestants, but Henry's church was nowhere near the sort of Protestantism that we'll see in the next episode with Edward, who was very much a Protestant. Uh, The boy king, Henry's son, um, has some back-and-forth letters with John Calvin about how to more deeply reform England. That's the Protestant England I think that we should... uh, I think that we see uh, the English Reformation taking off. But Henry, I I don't feel very comfortable saying he's part of the Reformation. Right. Now, um... As we come to the end, we've mentioned that Henry's died. Uh, A few things to keep in mind for the next episode. We've really got here uh, three big players now that Henry has died. Henry dies with one male heir. That is Edward VI, who he had with Jane Seymour, his third wife. Henry's oldest child is Mary I, who he had with uh, Catherine of Aragorn, his first wife. Uh, and probably the most famous of all of these is going to be Elizabeth I, the daughter he had with Anne Boleyn, his second wife. Um, the line of secession here is going to be pretty clear at Henry's death. Henry has a male heir, Edward. He will now take the crown. Uh, we will find, though, that 
not too long into Edward's reign, things start to get a little more complicated than that. But that's for the next episode. Speaking of next episode, have some announcements to make. Gerhard? Yeah, uh, so we um, here at the Reformation Podcast and um, just sort of the broader media world that we're associated with are um, going to be focusing more time and energy on sort of online media production. Um, The Reformation Podcast is a big part of that. Um, And so we are now going to transition from whenever Jake and I have time to research and record an episode to a strict every month uh, sort of uh, system. And so this episode um, is sort of the last in the old line. It's going to come out um, just when I get time to edit. Um, But the next episode uh, is going to come out on January 15th. And so our plan is to record um, and put out one episode every month right at the mid-month. we do have some stretch goals, though. If we can get to 5,500 5, 5, uh, downloads for uh, consistently on the episodes, then we're going to start putting out two a month. Um, and so if you like us, um, specifically our podcast, um, and you want more of information about the in- about the Reformation in general and early modern Christianity, uh, and you want this to happen more often, if you could um, tweet about the show, um, tag us on Facebook, maybe just tell a friend or whatever. Uh, we don't put any money into marketing this um, because we sort of put it out as a free service anyway. Um, but and we don't have money. And we don't have we don't have the money to. Um, if you could help us by spreading the word, that would be great, and we would be we would appreciate it and. Since you like the podcast enough to share it, it, that would have a benefit for you because we'll be putting the podcast out uh, more regularly. Some of you uh, listeners have reached out to us. We're getting a few emails every month, and uh, that's always really fun to see, fun to hear your feedback. And We really do base episodes on it. Uh, our last episode on Anabaptists and money was uh, at the request of a viewer, uh, listener, I guess. Uh, so yeah, please keep doing that. Uh, find us on Twitter. You can find our handles in the uh, bio for the Reformation podcast. Uh, let us know you're listening. Really energizing. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, it's been a really surprisingly good, and I think a bigger audience we'd anticipated at the start of this, so really thanks to everybody listening. Uh, the the broader media group that we're associated with is also getting ready to undergo some uh, exciting moves and uh, stronger focus on online content production, so if you're not following us on uh, Patristica Press over on Facebook, uh, find us there, our network, uh, because that's also getting ready to make some larger announcements about the future of uh, all of these groups, the Reformation podcast, uh, the Podcastica Patristica, and then the uh, the new content we're going to start putting out. So, yeah, find us online. We're there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, see, you, uh, see you later. On Jake, the 15th. On the 15th, specifically. Jake, would you run that beautiful bean footage? <laughs>